0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to bring you a conversation I had with Cassie Holmes. She's an award-winning professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management and one of the world's leading authorities on time and happiness. In her new groundbreaking book, Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most – She shares her cutting-edge research that guides readers through how to enrich your life by better investing the time that you have, no matter how time-poor you may feel. And as a professor, she teaches a course on this very topic year in and year out. And so she's been covering this for years and bringing results from that course into this book. We've talked before on the show about the correlation metaphorically, Between time and money. And in this conversation, Cassie talks about that time poverty phrase, what it is, why it's damaging, how it's subjective, really, and ways that you can increase your time affluence or the amount of time that you have, and how you can get more out of or stretch your dollars time wise if you follow the metaphor. So if this is interesting to you, like it is for me, I know you're going to love this conversation. With Cassie Holmes. Well, this week, it's my privilege to welcome to the show Dr. Cassie Holmes. Cassie, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List.
1: Hi, Eric. This is so much fun. I'm excited.
0: I am too. So you have a great new book out called Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. And you're also an award-winning professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. And management and time management are so similar. And the book's about time. So I get all that. But you also pull in a lot of different other areas like economics and psychology and things like that. So I'm curious, what brought you from management to time management? What's the superhero origin story of this book?
1: Yeah, which I'm so excited about this book reaching the world, and I think something that you didn't even touch on, which is even more surprising, perhaps from a business school context, is that what I really study and focus on is happiness. So it's about how do we manage our time, but I would say even invest our time, not just for the traditional you think about a business school efficiency and productivity. But actually, my goal and in the research is looking at how do we actually feel happy and satisfied and fulfilled with how we spend the time in our days. And so how did I sort of go on this route to study time and happiness, particularly within a business school context, which is actually even more surprising because my whole career has been within business schools, my Ph.D., I was a Stanford graduate school of business and I was a marketing professor, but really my training is social psychology. So what circumstances lead to decisions. And uh, as a marketing PhD, initially I was looking at choice satisfaction with like products, but then I'm like, wait a second, I'm spending so much time on this. I don't just care about choice satisfaction. I care about choice satisfaction for things beyond like the coffee you choose or the magazine you choose. And really, the choice satisfaction or satisfaction with our lives overall, satisfaction with how we spend our days and how we spend our time. And the focus on time in a business world context as opposed to money was, I think, somewhat surprising in my dissertation work was looking at the benefits of actually individuals Shifting their attention towards time as they're more a critical resource compared to money, finding that it led people to invest their time in ways that are more aligned with their values and in ways that they come out of spending that time from those activities feeling happier and more satisfied. And so it's been my research life of looking at the relationship between time and happiness and At my first job out of my PhD program, I was a professor at Wharton. And I remember sort of very vividly in one of those early days when I was an assistant professor. And it's just one of these crazy days that I'm sure all can sort of empathize with. And it was just so busy. So I was traveled up from Philly to New York to give a talk that day. And it was like my presentation was sandwiched within back-to-back meetings. And then I had this colleague dinner and then I was rushing to get the very last train that would get me home to my four-month-old and my husband back in Silly. And I did make the train, but when I was sitting on the train that night, looking out the window, as everything was passing by so fast, I was like, holy cow!" No. Life is moving so fast and I am exhausted. I'm totally overwhelmed. There simply aren't enough hours in the day to do it all. You know, all the work pressures, being a good partner, being a good parent, being a good friend, the never ending pile of chores. And so what I was feeling was actually the limitations of time. And now in my work and in the literature, we refer to this as time poverty, this feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And then from that, I was like, I don't know if I can keep up. Maybe I should quit my job that I had worked hard for. But before quitting, I was like, Okay, would I actually be happier if I had a whole lot more time? And so we tested this, not on the train that night, but of But sort of subsequently, and we found that actually this inverse relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their happiness. So there's like, if you have too little time, you're less happy. If you have too much time, so we shouldn't quit, then we're also less happy. And then there's actually this broad swath in between where there's not a relationship between how much time you have and your happiness. And from that, I'm like, actually, maybe it's not so much about how much time we have Maybe it's how we invest the time we have. So that, to answer your question, led me to adjust my research agenda to figure out how should we spend the time in our days to feel happier? And then I developed a course for our MBAs based off of these learnings and seeing the incredible impact that these empirical learnings that if they stay just saying, you know, I in our academic journals nobody would know about and not be able to apply. And so when I saw the impact of that, when I was approached to write a book, I was like, yes, because I want these learnings based off of our research to reach readers everywhere.
0: And what I can say is that the book, though, based on academic rigorous research, isn't just a tome of knowledge high up on a shelf. It's Practical and applicable to everyday life, much like how you started off with you have the academic interest and in research and path forward, but then you come crashing into wait a second, I'm not happy with how things are going right now with my lived life experience. And so you put those two together with the Venn diagram and you get the book, the course, and then the book, I should say.
1: Yeah, that's what motivated the book. And it's that's why I'm like so excited that it's now out in the world because then it can help people. It's like out there and people can read and apply. As you said, it's very applicable. It's, yes, I share research, um, but it's not an academic read. It's like based on research, but there's a lot of anecdotes, a lot of stories that to make it feel more resonant and approachable and hopefully interesting and page turning. But really, it's the exercises and the assignments in it so that folks can be like, okay, how can I actually apply this and do these, you know, apply these insights and start feeling the benefits of them right away.
0: So in essence, people are getting an MBA course in the book.
1: I know. And that's a money saver and even a time saver because my course takes 10 weeks. But, you know, depending on how quickly you read. <laughs> you get it all.
0: So, speaking of time and money, you mentioned time poverty. Let's go back and expand on that a little bit more. What that is and how that applies here.
1: Yeah. So, time poverty is the acute feeling as having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And it isn't just me on the train at night or like those days. We've conducted a national poll that shows that nearly half of Americans feel time poor. Though moms tend to feel more time for than dads and the working parents tend to feel particularly impoverished, all types of people lack for time. So folks who don't have kids, folks who don't work for pay, you see that in our culture, there's a lot of that sort of doing, 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 hurrying, hurrying, hurrying. And with that, we feel like we don't have enough time to get it all done. And it's also not just the Americans. So Folks across the blood report feeling time poor. And the problem is that the prevalence of this shows just that it is a problem. But the real problem comes when you see the effects of it. So when we feel like we don't have enough time, it makes us less healthy. So we're less likely to spend the time exercising. We delay going to the doctor. We're more likely to eat fast food because it's faster. It makes us less nice because we are less likely to slow down and take the time to help others out. It makes us less confident in being able to set out, like as as I mentioned, that sort of that sense of limitation from time. It makes us feel like we can't accomplish what we set out to do. We feel limited by it. And in the research that I mentioned, but also in our other research, we found that it makes us less happy. And so it's serious. I mean, I actually do think that happier hour, like the book, there is help and exercises that can help anyone, no matter where you are in that curve. So it absolutely can help folks who are sort of in a too much time bucket to figure out, okay, how do I invest my hours and get that sense of purpose and fulfillment that you might feel lacking when you have too much time? But really... It helps those who do feel time for and are sort of looking back on the day. Like I did on that train feeling exhausted and overwhelmed and like, you don't, you can't do it all. You don't want to do it all. And it feels really bad. And instead, how do we invest in the hours of the day so that even if you're busy still, that you actually look back and feel fulfilled and satisfied and ready for the next day. And so. I actually think that happier hours helps combat time poverty through the individual. So like if you are someone who does feel time poor, what are things that you can do to alleviate that sense of limitation, alleviate that sense of stress and feel happy?
0: Now, I don't want to keep talking about money per se, but it is a great analogy here. Obviously, This is a problem where time isn't just the problem. You say this in the book. Time isn't just the problem. It's the solution. And much like what people would say when they don't have enough time, I just wish I had more. And so same thing with money. Oh, I don't have enough money. I just wish I had a lot more. But you're saying that when it comes to time, there's a sweet spot. You don't want too little and you don't want too much. But I know a lot of people would say, give me all the time in the world, because if you gave me all the money in the world all my problems would go away, so to speak.
1: Yeah, in neither case. So the research, so I don't do the research on the relationship between money and happiness, but I do teach it in course that even more money, it doesn't promise happiness. It's not as closely linked to our happiness as we expect, but even more so with respect to time, that it's not just that more time doesn't lead to continuing increasing happiness, but actually there is such thing as having too much. So more is not better. And I actually, I mean, a, a big theme in the book and in my work and in what I have found and experienced is so true, is that it is not about how much time you have. It is given the time that you have, the hours that you have available to you in your day, and more of those hours are available, quote unquote, to use any you might think, and investing those hours on activities that feel worthwhile and maximizing that and minimizing the time you spend on activities that feel like a waste. But also, and we can sort of unpack this, is when you're spending time on those worthwhile activities is being invested, paying attention, not being distracted so that when you're spending that happy time, you're not missing out, right? So it's about making the most of your time, both with the activities that you spend it, but also making the most of that time by being engaged.
0: One last time money analogy reference, and then I'm done with them for this episode. But
1: <laughs> it- it's my dissertation work. And again, being at a business school, I have to I spend the first three classes talking about money and its role, because that's what my MBA students are like. But what about money? So, yeah.
0: So in other words, what you're saying is it's not a specific amount of time, just like it's not a specific amount of money that can solve the problem. It's the way or what you're spending the time or the money on. In other words, that helps because to go on the money side of things, and then we'll go back to time and then go into some of the exercises. When it comes to money, we've all, I hope, experienced this and then learned from the lesson that we've made not much. Then we get promoted or graduate into a higher level or whatever you want to call it. We are blessed to have a higher amount of money. And then it seems like then we still don't have excess ever. We just start to live above our means when we were fine previously living at the other level of means just fine. It just always felt like it's just not enough. It's just not enough. And so this relates to time in my mind when it comes to Parkinson's law, which is that work expands to fill the time allotted for it. So time budgeting comes into play here.
1: Yeah. And whether it's work or whatever else will fill the time that you, um, sort of, if you're not intentional, it will fill the time that you have. And there's like a couple of like threads that I I am happy to pull on from what um, you said. I mean, we can talk about the reason that money, as you said, that more and more, like we adapt for one thing, when, and research shows that once you launch a longitudinal work shows that if you get based off of effect sizes, if you get a fifty percent raise, yes, you are initially happy, but then within four years you return to baseline, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that you get used to it, right, and so that plays into time as well. So there's this psychological tendency of ours that's called hedonic adaptation. So when we get exposed to something again and again, we do the same thing. We hang out with the same person from a time perspective, but we're in the same set of circumstances again and again, we get used to them over time. And so it stops having the same uh, impact on our emotions. And so you can see how that relates to many that at first you're like, you notice it. But then you get used to that bigger house or that you know, your neighborhood or whatever it is that you invested that money in, those circumstances. So that they stop having quite as strong of an effect on your emotions as they initially had. But also social comparison is at play. Definitely more so with respect to money than with respect to time. Because what social comparison does is it undermines this is another underminer of happiness. Is that When I ask you, how happy are you? How satisfied are you in life? You're like, well, how am I doing compared to those around me? And you start looking at those around you. And often this notion of what is success, people are looking at how am I doing with respect to finances compared to those around me. And there's always going to be someone who makes more. A Also, we're more sensitive to people who are doing better off than us than those who are doing worse off. So you always feel looking when you're looking at how am I doing compared to others, particularly on that dimension of money. The good thing with respect to time is that it's not the social comparison isn't quite as much at play because you don't actually know. I mean, with social media, that's a sort of interesting thing. We're in to mess with our sense of how we're spending our time because as you're like constantly looking at those like perfect moments that folks are having and posting about, right? Which is not a representative sample of their life and their experiences. It's just the happiest moments. And since you're following lots of people or looking at lots of people, it seems like, oh my gosh, literally every second, everyone is having more fun than I am. Research shows that when people use social media in this passive way of watching other people's lives, it makes people less happy. It undermines uh, the sense of connection because they're like, oh my gosh, they're hanging out. I'm not. I feel lonely. It makes you feel less happy. It lowers self-esteem. So it has all those negative effects. It also, I surmise and hypothesize that social media also makes us increases our sense of time poverty because when I said what time poverty is, this feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it, that senses what we have to do is absolutely subjective. And if we're constantly looking at all the things that we should be doing, then it sort of messes with our expectations of what we can and should be doing. And of course we don't have enough time to you know, be on a vacation every second like the people that we're looking at on our social media feeds.
0: Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search. slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So say that we are aware that we are time poor or we have time poverty in our lives. We have not enough time and too much to do and we want to become more time affluent and you say there are three tools to start with that. What are those three tools?
1: Yeah. And so when in that time maybe, it's like that expectation of what I should and could be doing. But there's also this sense of lacking confidence and being able to achieve what you set out to do. There are these tools that if you increase your sense of confidence and being able to do what you set out to do, then it actually Lessons of a sense of limitation um, that's we so tightly associate with time, being that limitation. So some ways to offset time poverty and increase time affluence. One is actually exercise, which is sort of interesting because when we don't feel like we have enough time, then as I mentioned, the thing we sort of neglect is exercise. But exercise is really absented at increasing self-esteem, upsetting anxiety and you know, even though initially you might be like, I don't have time to go for a run in the morning. When you do and you're out there running, it's like, oh, I can do this. Like bring it on day. And it lessens that sense of limitation that less, lessens that sense of time poverty. doing kind acts for others. So another thing that I mentioned that we do when we or don't do rather, when we feel time for is helping others out but we had worked, I had a, a series of studies where we found that actually spending time to help another makes you feel like you have more time because when you spend the time to help someone, you're like, Oh my God, I accomplished a lot. I had a big impact with the time that I had. And then you're like, Oh my gosh, I can do so much with the time that I have more generally. Yeah. And lessening that sense of limitation. The third is um, experiencing awe. So awe, which, you know, gets evoked. Maybe through nature, seeing a beautiful sunset, seeing a sunrise, or seeing an incredible, you know, like musical performance, that expands you. And through that sense of expansion, it expands not just your perspective, but your sense of time, again, lessening that sense of limitation and constraint. So there are ways, and what's interesting is that, in like some of the ways, to offset this feeling of being time poor is not actually to do less, but it's actually to do more and really investing in these activities that are really worthwhile.
0: It sounds to me like these three steps are very much about shifting the perspective of the time that you have, the worth of that time, how long that time is spent on doing air quotes, mundane things versus meaningful things. Like if I'm doing exercise, that's changing not just my self-confidence, but my awareness of, oh, no, I need to prioritize this and fit it in. Same thing with acts of kindness. It's, well, I spent that time not on myself, but somebody else. And now I feel like, wait a second, I need to make sure that's a priority as well. Not just because it makes me feel good, but it's deeper than that. It's a contribution. Yeah. And awe, I'll go to a concert For example, I go to concerts as often as I can. It's still very rare, but I know that that's a huge priority for myself because that is one of those things that's just so worthwhile, depending upon the concert and the company going with me to the concert. and. It, it just, it again, sense of awe. Some of the bands that I see, I have this sense of awe of how they do what they do. And it recontextualizes. Those three things recontextualize your time and budget of time that you have and your perspective on that time as well.
1: Yeah. And that's you put it so nicely because in that sort of feeling of time poverty, we're just sort of like – we're so frazzled, our head is down and we're just worried about like what's next and rushing through it. Whereas this shifting in perspective, it allows you to like take a step back and you're not worried about the sort of minutiae, of like these tasks that are on your to-do list. Instead, you're, you're, you have this broader perspective. Again, it's less limiting, it's more fulfilling, it's more extensive and there's more, more positive.
0: Another thing that comes to mind is I know you talk about recognizing that our hours are numbered. That's another perspective shift as well.
1: Yeah. And I'll share with you an analogy because I think it's um, quite helpful, particularly because we've alluded to it a couple of times, is that our, you know, time getting sealed with this mindless, mundane minutiae, but it will get filled if we let it. And so in this um, analogy, and I continue to use it and touch on it, and I actually opened the first day of my class showing this short film where a professor walks into an classroom and on the desk, he puts a large clear and plastic jar. And then from the back, he pulls a bunch of golf balls and he pours the golf balls into the plastic jar and they reach the very top and he asks the students, is the jar full? And the students nod. He's like milk. <laughs> then from the bag, he pulls out pebbles and he pours the pebbles into the plastic jar. And they reach the very top. And they're sort of filling in between the golf balls, all those sort of crevices. And then he asks the as students, as the jar told him, the the students are like, "Yes, the jar is full." And then nope. One more step. But he told from the bag. He pulls out sand and he pours the sand to the top of the jar reaching the top of the jar. And that sand, is fills all that those crevices between the golf balls, between the pebbles. And then, actually, there is one more step even beyond that. Then, and the asks the student, there's a jar full. And by this point, the students are all laughing. And like, yes, the jar is full. And he pulls out two beers. He opens one, pours it into the jar, and they reaches the very top. He opens the other, goes and sort of perches on the front of the desk, takes a sip, and then he explains... The jar represents the time in your life, the time that you have available, that space, right? And then the golf balls are other things that really matter. Your friendships, your relationships with your family, your passions, the pebbles are the other things in your life, right? Your job, your house. The sand is everything else. The sand is all of that stuff that fills your time. And what's really important to recognize is that had he put the sand in first, not all of the golf balls would have sit. And so what that highlights is if you let your time get filled with the minutia, with the social media, with the email inbox, with the whatever the sand is for you, it will get filled. And you will get filled and you won't have time to spend on those things that really matter. And then actually one of the students is like, Professor, what's the deal with the beers? And she's like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Because what that shows is that no matter how busy your days are, how full your time feels, you always have time for a drink with a friend, which is another important point. But all of this is to point out just how important it is to prioritize, spend the time, make the time, for the things that matter to you, those really worthwhile activities, put those into your schedule first. Put your golf balls, place them. And then, yes, sand will... Like there will be sand in your days. But the thing that you really want to make sure of is that the sand, that your days aren't just filled, but they end up being fulfilling because you do have those hours across the day or even thinking or past the week that were absolutely worthwhile that are you know those ways of spending time that genuinely do connect you to other people or those ways of spending time that are absolutely aligned with your passions and your purpose like those really satisfying ways of spending and then it's okay that there is sand but it's not just sand and so i think that this is it's an important uh, analogy that can really help frame sort of what I hope that Happier Hour does is to help identify. So there's a variety of exercises that is like, okay, so golf balls are important. But what are my golf balls? What are your golf balls, right? So what are those ways of spending that are really worthwhile? Those ways, and when I say worthwhile, that are really enjoyable, that make you happy, that make you feel fulfilled. So there's activities that help you reflect there. As well as to identify what is your sand? What are those ways that fill your time that you have to be really truthful about and attentive to and protect your time from so that your schedule and your days don't just, you know, feel super sandy.
0: Couple things. One, I've seen this example done live where they did it the right way first and just has it played out just as you described it. And yeah. then they said, now let me show you, and they do the opposite. They sh- literally show, and they they did water, not beer, but I can see where that works, especially with the, the last <laughs> yeah. one, with a drink with friends. They pour the water, they pour the sand, they pour, I think they did little rocks, and then they did big rocks. And the big rocks, you know, they're trying to fit them in, they're spilling out all over and they don't fit. And it kind of drove the point home one extra measure. I think for a lot of people, though, they hear this analogy and they think, okay, on a head level and even a heart level, I get this. But what they're thinking is, my life is so full of sand, I don't even have time to pause right now and think about what my golf balls are and even get into like your exercise of the five whys, which I think is a great place to start. What will you say to somebody like that right now? I mean, my prescriptive thing is somehow, some way, you've got to either get up earlier and just take you know, a time block and say, I may not get it all figured out, but I'm gonna take 15 minutes, half an hour over the course of one day, two day, three day, or even make an agreement with a spouse, a partner, a, a friend to alleviate some task I've already obligated myself to do, or go back and say, hey, I can't do it anymore. Let yourself off the hook, say no, and then take that time, replace it, and get some of these golf balls figured out.
1: Yeah. And so I think the time tracking exercise is a really helpful one and it doesn't take a lot of extra time. It's not like its own activity. What you are doing is tracking your activities over the course of a week, writing down what you're doing, but more importantly, rating how you feel coming out of that activity on a 10 point scale. And then at the end of the week, you have this amazing data set where you can pull out what are those activities that got those highest ratings. What are those activities that are your lowest ratings, as well as it allows you to identify just how much time you're spending across your activity so you can see what the sand is quite clearly. So what are those activities that are not necessary, not even getting high ratings, like you're giving it fours and fives, but you're spending a whole lot of time doing it. And I mean, social media, to be honest, is one of the ones that pops up a lot. And when my students do this, they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that I spent 12 hours this week. Because they think like, oh, it's just going to be a few minutes here, a few minutes there. And it's not even that fun. They give it like fours and fives. Meanwhile, they don't feel like they have time to meet up with friend for drinks or dinner after work because, oh, I'm so busy. But that that activity would get a 9 or a 10 rating, right? And so it, it allows you to very clearly recognize what are those activities and actually even uh, as helpful is what are the commonalities across those activities that you get at the highest ratings so you can sort of make sure that you are investing in ways that support those like whether it's social connection whether it is the role of exercise but I think even without doing the time tracking exercise which I actually very strongly suggest everyone do you can just reflect, like you can do this right now. Like I will spark this idea in your head. And for the next couple of minutes, once you, you know, the podcast finishes, folks can think about it. Think about your last two weeks. What were those moments that made you feel joy that made you feel satisfied or fulfilled or just happy? And it's helpful because even in their busiest of weeks, there are moments that make us feel joy. And often trains, it is really so we talked about you use the word mundane for things that might sort of fill our time, but sometimes these mundane, ordinary experiences are actually our greatest source of joy. It's just we're not noticing them. Right. So, you know, my coffee date with my daughter going for a morning run outside. Or those hours that are uninterrupted, that I'm doing the work that I love. Meanwhile, there's a lot of other hours in my workday that are I do not love. But you can recognize what are those ways that I spend my time that really do bring me joy. And that's like a step to start figuring out, okay, what matters to be. There are also, you mentioned the five wise exercise. There's also exercises that lead people to think about their life overall. So writing your eulogy is something that it's a very convenient exercise. And I have my students do this. And what this is really doing is leading you to think about your life overall, sort of projecting to the end of your life and writing. How do you want to be remembered? What legacy do you want to leave? What are the words you want people to use to describe you? And while at first you might be like, oh my gosh, this is super depressing," And what are we doing talking about death? But it's not an exercise about death. It's about leading you to think about the life that you want to live. But what that does is it clarifies what does matter to you. What are your values? What is your purpose? Like what do you ultimately want to have done in your life? How do you want to be engaging with the people around you now? Because Taking this broad perspective, and our research shows us that when people think about their years, kind of taking the broader perspective, thinking about years instead of hour by hour, then people actually do spend their time on things that are important rather than just reacting to what seems urgent in the moment. And so, I mean, across these exercises, but to like your concern, it's like, does this sound like too insurmountable for someone to do as they're just trying to get through the day? I think that initial just reflection exercise of what are those things that brought you joy? And then if you have a few other minutes when you're brushing your teeth tonight, you can be like, what are the three words that I want people to describe me when I've passed on? Like, it's not that you have to carve out hours or days for those introspection, you know, that these things... These insights are available to us, but we just need to take not a lot of time, but we need to assume that perspective to help clarify those things that really matter.
0: I know I wasn't going to make another money analogy, but I'm going to because, hey, it's my show. Totally. It's like monitoring where your money's being spent. It's looking back over the credit card statement or your bank statement and saying, oh, I have spent a lot at Starbucks when that's over exorbitant amount of price for the amount of caffeine that I can get elsewhere for much less money and and frankly, sometimes much better coffee. And it's by noticing, it's by having awareness of where that time is being spent. And there are simple time tracking tools where – You literally press buttons either on your phone or at a desktop computer or somewhere along the lines of that where suddenly you've got this insight and you can do something with that data and you're lifting the veil and getting a better and newer perspective. Now, that's not to say, okay, now all those things you just discovered about what you're spending your time on, like you're saying, are things you should throw out. But at least now you're aware of where some of the more obvious, let's call them leaks of money are where it's leaking to and you can shore those up or some of them switch to, no, I'm going to intentionally keep doing that one, but I'm going to make a uh, more exerted effort to enjoy it and have awe in it and relish it and make it part of my life.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yes. So the time tracking is is very much like tracking your money. And I actually, in some of my research actually about the research I was talking about at the very beginning from my dissertation work is simply thinking about our time. So tracking it makes you think about it. It makes you just a little more aware of where you're spending. The cool thing about the way that I suggest to try and track is not just how you're spending your time, but those ratings of how those activities make you feel is really important. And like, if you're even sort of daunted by finding an app that you press buttons on my website, it's like a simple piece of paper that you can print out. Kind of like carry it around with you. And like, if you're super low tech like me, you know, like with a pen and you just sort of jot over the course of your day, what you're doing and giving your readings, that little piece of paper, you know, at the end of the week, you can pour yourself a, you know, a beer or a cup of tea and look back and be like, okay, what are those activities that got my highest ratings? What are the commonalities across them? And it isn't hard relating to the discussion of money, which like I want to play out that there are ways that actually money can contribute more to our happiness, and it really is about how you spend the money. Um, the research shows that spending money, and interestingly, each of the ways of spending money to bring greater happiness are all about time. It's investing in giving you better time. So whether it's by outsourcing, so spending money to alleviate you from some of the chores that for you, when you're tracking, you will be like, oh my God, this is the worst chore ever. And I'm so unhappy doing it. And maybe there's actually a food service or a whatever service that means that I wouldn't have to spend those full hours and it is worth the time because we know that the resource that is more important for happiness is time than money. So putting little money against it, but also spending money in ways that contribute to the things that we know that make us happy, that sense of connection. So buying gifts or spending money for others, whether it's charitable giving or spending money on gifts for others, research shows that people are happier spending on others than actually on themselves. And then there's a lot of work looking at the role of experiences versus material goods. And I have work that shows that giving experiential gifts. So taking someone to a concert, taking someone to dinner, you're even getting them a gift card or concert tickets that you don't even need to go to with them. That actually those gifts versus spending that money to buy them things that end up sitting, you know, on shelves or whatever experiential gifts are more connecting. The recipient feels more connected to you. And because they get an experience from it, they are spending time in a way that evokes emotion, that makes them feel connected. So even when we're talking about monetary expenditures, the happiness um, is very tightly tied to time.
0: I think for me, what I'm picking up here is that it's not a quick fix. This is a shift in adopting a new not just a perspective but a practice by pairing those things practice and perspective you over time will find yourself in a different place find yourself happier I mean let's just say that That, that's really what we're going after here is that we feel like we're fulfilled because we're spending our time on the right things and whether that means we're figuring out how to say no and not fill our time with as much things, or we're spending our time on the things that matter more, whichever way we want to go with that, probably both, we're going to end up happier. And that's kind of the point.
1: Yeah, the point is absolutely to end up happier. And while there is a sort of shift, like it's not these drastic life decisions that you need to make. And actually some of the exercises, so you know, we've just touched on a, a couple of them. But over the course, like across the back, I give a lot of exercises that folks do. And some of that like have immediate benefits. So it's not like you have to wait and like do all of them and apply all of them and then you'll be happy. Actually, there are some of these just really easy little things that you can do that can have a tremendous impact on your happiness. And actually touching back to when... And reflecting on those moments of joy, sometimes they are these really mundane things. Like coffee date with my daughter, for instance. And this is something that is like, it was born out of a functional routine. I was like, after dropping my son's carpool off, she was tagging along because I needed to take her to her preschool on my way to the office. And I wanted a cup of coffee. Basically, how do I get my caffeine in the morning? But this thing that was just a routine that we could have been doing mindlessly, we turned it into a ritual and it made it special. And it was just time that has become something that we really look forward to each week. And this time was just the two of us hanging out, you know, drinking her hot chocolate, me my coffee and croissants. And it's 30 minutes, but it has a really big impact on my happiness because we look forward to it. we remember it. And when you ask me how happy I am, I'm like, I am happy because one of those things that really contributes to our emotional well-being is a sense of connection, of having those strong relationships. And this 30 minutes, yes, I spend time with her otherwise, of course, during the week, but it's really these 30 minutes that cement the close relationship that we have. And color my overall week. I'm like, yeah, like even when I'm so busy, I'm like, I, you know, I'm happy because I have that relationship at least, you know. And so it's just 30 minutes, but it has a bigger impact. And what it does is the specialness of it, it makes sure that I'm paying attention. And another exercise actually in the book is counting times left that sometimes We don't pay attention. Or so often actually the research shows that we're not paying attention to what we're currently doing about half of the time. So that means like even when you're spending time on activities that are good ones, you know, are potentially golf balls, we might not notice it because we're distracted. Right. And so if you're gonna be spending that time, pay attention so that you get the happiness that's already there in the time that you're spending. And the counting times left exercise. Highlights, it's just that even though some of these moments of joy are so everyday that we don't pay attention to them because we expect them to continue to happen every day. You know, we talked about the role of hedonic adaptation is we stop noticing because they are everyday. But when we count and we recognize how many times we have left to do them and actually more importantly, the percentage of our total times we have left, it highlights that even those everyday moments are limited and precious. And that's what leads you to savor and sort of delight in those simple joys that are in the time that we're already spending.
0: So the perspective pivot there is this isn't just something I do every day. It's now flipped to this is something that I get to do every day. Or there's probably a better way to say that thinking in terms of your coffee, it's not, I get coffee every day and my daughter's there. It's, I have a coffee date with my daughter. Those two things are very different.
1: Totally. It's absolutely different. And, you know, actually in the time tracking research, oftentimes, like this socializing is one of these activities that lead to greatest happiness. But in your own personal time tracking, you'll recognize that not all time spent with others is the happiest. It's really those moments of joy tend to come where spending time with the other is the focus. As you said, it's my coffee date with my daughter is the focus. It's not me getting coffee and someone else happens to be there, right? That's the difference. And that's why for whether you're reflecting on your moments of joy or doing the time tracking is pulling out again, what are those dimensions that are so critical to the happiness and so often it is whether again it's like really connecting genuinely connecting with another person or with a group of people like a sense of belonging that comes from it or fulfilling something that you know a passion or uh, an activity that really is in service of your purpose and uh, higher order goals or as we talked about awe like (laughs) it is it is Being in these contexts, whether it's a concert, being outside in nature, where you're like, this is like, I'm part of like humanity, I'm part of the world. And those emotions, absolutely, if we're paying attention from while we're spending this time, they can have an incredible impact on our happiness.
0: I know there's a lot more in the book and a lot more exercises that we could go through and talk about, but... I think at this point, we just need to tell people, all right, where can you find out more and dive in a little bit on your site as far as getting more information about the book and, you know, grabbing it ultimately?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the book has it. So and you can get the book anywhere on the Amazon, at your local bookstore. So happier hour. And then my website, com. There you also find information about my book and my research more generally and sort of where I am in the world of this book door. And so that is where you can find me. You will not find me actually quite as active on social media for all the reasons that I mentioned, but my website is um, a nice landing page.
0: Perfect. And I will make sure to link up to everything we just talked about and the sites and everything in the show notes for this episode. So if you happen to be doing something positive and proactive while you're listening, no worries. You can just click that, find it, come back to it later.
1: That time tracking worksheet that I mentioned is also oh yes, the website.
0: Perfect. Yeah. So we'll link up to all that. Cassie, it's been awesome talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It was really lovely to spend this time together.
0: Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Cassie Holmes like I did. I always like geeking out on time and money together because it's kind of slightly sci-fi-ish in a way. I don't know. Maybe not. But for me, it kind of is. It definitely correlates in terms of budgeting resource. And I think that applies across the board. I hope that you got some insights into not only your time, but also your money and vice versa, and how to get more out of your time, how to allocate your time, how to be more aware of the time that you have, how to use it better, especially towards things that are more worthwhile. I know that's something that I've been trying to focus on recently when it feels like there's less and less time as the calendar year is closing off for 2022 and heading into 2023. I want to make the most of 2023, and I think you do, too. So I've linked up to the book in the show notes. You can grab it from there. And if you enjoyed this conversation, would you do me a favor and share it with somebody that you know? Do a favor for them, too. Share it with them. Let them know about this conversation. Hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice or over on the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. Thank you again for sharing. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next episode.